thank you for joining us again. This podcast contains adult themes, namely discussions around death and grief. Sorry, you have to wait a little bit longer for the violence. This is Perfectly Murderous. Hello and welcome to Perfectly Murderous, uh, the second episode with myself, Ryan Stevenson, and my good friend, Sandy King. Buongiorno, Sandy. Buongiorno, Ryan. How are you? <laughs> that was such a nicer accent than, uh, than mine. Oh, I, I was like, you have this moment when, when an English person speaks to you with an Italian accent where you think, I don't know if it's twattier to go along with it or, you know, like lean into it or be like, buongiorno, Ryan. How you doing, mate, son? <laughs> my mum came over to New Zealand. Common greeting anyway in New Zealand is just kia ora. Mm. Yeah, my mum was going, kia ora to everybody. And it's like, please, please stop, mum, please. <laughs> the new Kia Aura available in dealerships across the West Country. <laughs> We're off to a good start. Yeah. Last time we looked at the cover and we did a bit of yeah. bit of background around the family and everything, and we and we looked through the blurb as well. Yeah. So today we're going to talk through the introduction and chapter one as well. Yeah. This is the semi-fictionalized account of the kidnap and murder of your mother, written by your father, right? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> So I feel like there was one thing in the blurb that we didn't talk about. Mm. We could have missed. I'd like to go back and just talk to you briefly. And that's that we found out the character's name. Mm. I don't know if you picked up on it. David Stone. Right. David Stone. Yeah, I don't think there's any sort of link. Like I was able to explain the pseudonym that my dad's used uh, as the author of the book. Yes. I don't sort of see anything here. I think it's just purely a character, a name there. It's a bit of a sort of John Everyman type name, isn't it? Yeah, but with a bit of coolness, right? Like Stone's quite kind of cool. Roger Stone, Sly and the Family Stone. <laughs> I, when I was when I was about four years old, my best friend was called William Stone. It's quite a, it's quite a, a cross section of images that come to my mind. Yeah, I suppose so, Mister Stone. Yeah, it kind of it struck me as like like you said, it's quite a sort of an everyman name, but it has got sort of this element of coolness to it, I suppose, just slightly, but not too much, mm. not overly done, which I quite liked. And it did make me laugh just a little bit that we've got now we've now got the character name of the pseudonym of the author. Yes, it's it's all got a bit Inception. <laughs> yes, yeah. a bit of a Russian doll of <laughs> of of. <laughs> Of plausible deniability. <laughs> yeah, but I actually think it's quite hard to come up with a character name. Yes. I think you have real life names that are just so ridiculous that if you made them up, everyone would go, that's ridiculous. You know, people like Edward Woodward. Yes. <laughs> Sandy King. <laughs> or Sandy King, indeed. <laughs> but no, I actually quite like the name. We'll get to know David Stone. My brother, who's also called David, once had a theory for creating the perfect fictionalised name. Oh, go on. And his formula was to take a first name from classical mythology and to make the surname an object that you find in your house. So you'd have something like Androcles Toast yeah. or um, Hephaestus Duvet. And I always I always thought there was a bit of charm to that. But it doesn't, doesn't have quite that, that blend into a crowd every man factor of David Stone. As you said that, I imagined a, a name and I picked Jason was the first one that came to my head. Mm. And then you said an object in the house and I just looked at the first thing. So my character is Jason Dressing Gown. <laughs> That's got to be hyphenated, hasn't it? 
<laughs> yeah, it's a double barreled name. Mer- married in. <laughs> Jason. Oh, I don't know. I think Jason Dressing Gown is um, is the privately educated member of parliament for somewhere very leafy in, in Middle England. <laughs> Right, I wanna, I wanna hear more. I'm on hooks. I'm on, t- on not hooks, <laughs> tenter hooks. It's quite different, isn't it? Well, this is the uh, the intro to start off with, and it starts with a question which I will pose to you. Go on. Most people control their anger, but sometimes, after a particularly angry exchange, have you ever thought, "I want to kill that person"? Yes, yes, I have. <laughs> Usually, the impulse subsides after a decade or two, but yes. um, sometimes it, it can really linger. Wow, what an opener. Mm. I was kind of thinking that um, I don't know that I genuinely have thought I want to kill somebody. And now I feel a bit awkward about <laughs> about casually admitting that I do all the time. Sorry about that, Sandy. I should have gone first. <laughs> my 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 whole sort of take on this is like, oh, it's a clever way to make everyone reading this feel a bit complicit from the get-go. But, uh, <laughs> but apparently I may have some issues that I need to resolve. If you've been affected by some of the issues in today's <laughs> if you know Sandy and you've ever been concerned about his behaviour, please see it, say it sorted, <laughs> phone it in. <clears throat> yes. So you don't. No, and I, I would say that it's never wanted to actually kill anyone. And I, then I thought, is there anyone that I know that if I could just choose that they died, which essentially would be the murder, mm. would I would I say yes? And I thought, no one that I personally know I'd want that to happen to. And then I thought, is there anyone that if they died, you know, if I just found out Mm. about it, I would go, you know, kind of good riddance. There's a lad in Russia. Yeah, that's why I did say (laughs) I clarified with anyone I know. (laughs) Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. If you gave me the, that choice, then yeah, I don't think I would pull the hypothetical trigger on anyone. But in a moment, I mean, that's a different thing, isn't it? In the heat of an argument, to just, oh, why I order, I wish you, no, I say it out loud, I wish you were dead. That's, this seems, does seem a bit excessive now. I'm going to go away and work on, work on my anger issues over the next week. <laughs> what about if, um, the, the final bit I said, if you, if you just found out that somebody died, is there anyone you think, oh, you know, thank goodness. Uh, you see, they deserve, if anyone deserves no, it. No, then it becomes, then it all becomes a little bit real. I've occasionally had elaborate revenge fantasies about a boss who treated me appallingly when I was working in South America. Mm. But I, I think the fun is in the elaborate revenge fantasy rather than the cold, hard reality of discovering that they've, I don't know, just ceased to be. That would that would feel that would all get a bit real, really. Well, that was a, a beautiful window into your soul. <laughs> Moving swiftly on. <laughs> So, it's a threat that's rarely carried out. Unless, of course, someone is pushed over the edge. But what makes someone carry out the final act of madness? The act of taking a life? It's a, a dangerous question to ask. Yeah. In this. There's also a lot of questions going on early in this book. I didn't realise it was going to have to be quite so interactive. <laughs> this is a module of <laughs> a test at the end. Choose your own adventure. <laughs> there is one word that jumps out to me in the middle of that. He says, what makes somebody carry out the final act of madness? And it's very important to me that he realises it's madness. Yes. You I mean, you summed up really well last week when you talked about out of the first five words, four of them were murder. So it's quite nice to hear that he recognises that murder is is madness. Yeah, it's just reassuring to, hear, <laughs> to see that. This, this book's going to have a moral <laughs> compass. Yeah. <laughs> 
Perfectly Murderous is a story where tragedy has destroyed a life, an event that ultimately leads to a calculated revenge, a revenge that is cold and meticulously premeditated over a period of years to enable the perpetrator to murder and get away with it. The perfect murder, in fact. So is it an act of madness or is it a cold, perfectly premeditated, you know, I think I, th- <laughs> I think a court of law might draw quite an important distinction between those two <laughs> descriptions. <laughs> I think that the way it's written, it's like murder's madness. You can't you can't go around murdering people. That's, that's mm. madness. You, you know, stop. But in this instance, there's been tragedy and, and actually this is this revenge is just. Mm. So normally it's madness, but this one, this one's okay. We can rationalise this one. That, that's sort of what I'm getting. Yeah, it's a, it's a strange combination, isn't it? The sort of um, grandiose language of, of murder and madness, very dramatic, very evocative, and then the sort of steady, mm. calculating undertone. All right, let's... Come on, I need more. <laughs> I'm on the edge of my seat. Well, what makes it all more terrible is that certain parts of this book are true, autobiographical even. You will have to decide what has taken place what is still to be undertaken oh you tease you tease mr edwards <laughs> it's definitely it's interesting because it's kind of there's that what's what's actually taken place and what's still to be undertaken like you said like it's it's that sort of threat it's very tongue-in-cheek but at the same time if i was my mum i'd probably be upgrading the burglar alarm yeah it's a it's a bold gambit i think we can agree <laughs> And also just talking about like my dad's attitudes as well, just it's kind of struck me just a second ago that the the title perfectly murderous and he says the perfect murder sort of to me, that phrase is almost it's an oxymoron that you can't have the perfect murder. It's it's a, an abhorrent act that can't be perfect in any way. In his eyes, murder is perfect. Like this, this is this is great. It's, like a long fun. soak in a warm bath at the end of a tough day. Well, he, his, his theory in the yeah. blurb was that for it to be perfect, you basically had to get away with it. <laughs> yep. And that's mentioned mm. there again. And I kind of feel that all of everything's happened. Like the, this has all gone down. The planning in his head, I'm, I'm sure the planning has happened. Mm. And I'm sure that he keeps mentioning and get away with it because he's kind of, I can imagine him in a room full of whiteboards, just like crossing things out and just going, oh, I can't do that. Forensics will find me on that one. Oh, how would I get rid of the murder weapon in that one? Oh, they'd be sure to find the body too quickly here. And, you know, <laughs> how can I make it look like an accident? And uh, I can just sort of imagine him doing that. It does also create a sort of almost bizarrely moral obligation to murder. If you can get away with it, then it is perfection. It is, it is something that you really ought to be doing. Patrick Edwards understands that you may not be able to get away with murder and in that case you can be let off like you've forgotten your forgotten your kit for for PE on a rainy Thursday afternoon but if you you know if if a spare jogging singlet can be found in the lost property box then you better get out there and run around in the mud young man because because you should do it it is perfect if you can <laughs> I could have just suddenly had a realization that maybe he has done it and it's it's so perfect. Ah. Well, let's hope not. No. <laughs> so this book is dedicated to Catherine. Uh so Catherine is my mm. my stepmama and my dad's third wife and to Elizabeth who Liz to me is uh, she was my stepmom who passed away from cancer. Right. And that's where we pick up with chapter 1. 
with her, with her in hospital. Do you have any sense of how your dad's third wife feels about having this particular book dedicated to her? Mm. It's a double-edged <laughs> sword, isn't it? I'm, I'm not sure. She's quite open-minded. Mm. So she might have seen it as, you know, a way of him, like a sort of self-help form of counselling just to get things off his mind and write things down. But also it'd be hell of a... I mean, how do you bring that up with your with your new wife? Oh, so you've been married before. Tell me about what happened. Oh, well, actually, you can read about it. I've um... <laughs> I've written it for you, my darling. <laughs> it's a bit like the fact that he came to you with the manuscript and said, you know, as a fellow writer, I really want your opinions on this. It's just it's just odd to be to be putting someone in the middle of that to dedicate to someone you've married the story of exactly how wrong it went the first time you tried this out in your head like that is it would make me feel a little bit uneasy yeah but at the same time flattered oh you've spent a lot of energy on this and it's all for me thank you darling i mean most people write a poem or something yeah but, uh... yeah it's mm. it's it's <laughs> It's more than the traditional Valentine's Day card, isn't it? But uh, I suppose everyone shows their affection in different ways. <laughs> and there's just some thanks at the bottom of the introduction, and then we'll be into chapter one. Go on. So with thanks to Miles My Allen and the Boxley Group, without whose help this book would never have been written. I know a little bit about the Boxley Group in that they were just a... a well, I say just, they're a, they're a writing group. Ah, okay. Boxley's quite a small place. I kind of have this mental image of them hiring out the village hall and all gathering round or, you know, having tea around someone's lounge. And and if they're a writer's group, they would have been writing all different exactly. kinds of books, right? So <laughs> I can imagine just like, oh, that was wonderful, Marjorie. What a lovely, fantastic, heartwarming, <laughs> romantic story. Yes, exactly. And... Doreen's composed a couple of sonnets on the theme of autumn, and uh, and Patrick and yeah. uh, Patrick Edwards. You've written some. You've written some murder fiction. Gosh, that's that's exciting, isn't it? <laughs> Why don't you read us a bit? <laughs> wow. I'll I'll be honest. When you said the Boxley Group, my first association with that, my hope, I suppose, was that it was a, a shady organisation of international hitmen. <laughs> It might well be. <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me. Maybe there's there's something dark and mysterious lurking at the bottom of that bone china teacup in Marjorie's hand. <laughs> I'd watch that movie. Judy Dench and Maggie Smith star as el elderly fiction writers by day whose whose quiet village life masks trips to Prague to go and assassinate diplomats. Let's write it. It sounds amazing. You'd watch the hell out of that, wouldn't you? <laughs> so, Sandy, we've come to the point of chapter one. Can't wait. I said to you earlier on that we, we do start with my stepmom being in hospital. So it starts off in quite a dark place. And by my dad's own words, he talks about what's real and, and what's you know still to be undertaken. Yeah. This bit's very real. Okay. I absolutely loved Liz to pieces. But obviously, we, we mean no disrespect if we're making jokes mm. or having fun as, as we talk through as well. Because it's, yeah, it's sometimes you just need to laugh. Absolutely. Yeah. 
So it's feel free to, you know, make jokes and make light of as, as we talk through as well. I don't feel totally free at this exact moment in the context of that that disclaimer. <laughs> a reminder that, you know, this was this was a, a much loved family member. Yeah, I, I'm just I'm interested to see how this book starts off because you know the way you've explained it to me it's going to change gear quite dramatically halfway through yes definitely well let's 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 hear a bit okay yeah chapter one sitting beside her watching her life slowly drain away he felt completely helpless tears ran down his face as he held her hand tightly it might prevent her from dying watching her slowly die like this broke his heart this is all so wrong so unfair you can't go on you can't go you can't leave me his whispered voice faltering as he finally realised he was going to lose her that night. So, I mean, just a couple of things to note in there. It's it's written in the third person, mm. but you do get his inner monologue in the first person written in italics, which I quite like. Okay. It reminds me, as, and it, as you go through the book, I don't know if you've ever read The Shining by Stephen King. No, I've never read it. Oh, it's, it's brilliant. Um, and you have Jack Torrance, who just is slowly losing his mind mm. as the uh, the book progresses. And just his inner monologue, very much like this, just sort of documents the, I suppose, his deteriorating mental health. Mm. Yeah, it's, just, it's quite a nice mix. I like that. Just my first impression is it's very, very raw. There's no metaphor. There's no flowery language. There's no beating around the bush. It's just a very honest, unfiltered thought early on. And I think that that sort of continues through. Mm. Such a joyless, sad environment to die in. The tiny dark room was only illuminated by a diminutive bedside lamp. It just about managed to cast a tiny pool of light over her face. A room of total all-enveloping confinement with walls that seemed to move in to enclose and trap him. Shadows filled every corner of the room, giving it an atmosphere of overbearing, sinister gloom. He could now almost imagine something evil hiding in the darkness, waiting to leap out and snatch her from his grasp. Only the lack of bars betrayed that this wasn't a prison, but a hospital room. I kind of feel that um, the mood's changed. It's a bit like an Oscars night. You know, suddenly something's happened. Someone's someone's about to get slapped. Yeah, and uh, suddenly the whole atmosphere has changed. We've gone from laughing and joking to... <laughs> If you're listening to this podcast five years in the future, go go and Google the name Will Smith. He used to be an actor. <laughs> I think people will still be talking about it in five years. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. Maybe. But yeah, I remember going to visit uh, my stepmom in the hospital and it was a very bleak setting. And uh, so I can sort of picture all of this that my dad's uh, describing as well. How, how old were you at the time? I was probably late 20s, I would say. Staring up at the ceiling, looking to heaven for help, he whispered, Dear God, what does it take to give me a little happiness? Please, just a little bit of happiness. Just a bit more time with her. What do I have to do? What do you need from me? All I need is a a miracle. Just a small one. I think it's um, very... I I don't know if you got the same impression from those thoughts. It seems very I-centred. Just from his views, like I... Get, what does it take to make me happy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rather than, please don't let her die. Yeah, it's. I mean, it just makes it seem a bit of an odd choice to write it in the third person. I don't know. Mm. As, a, as a sort of initial, initial response, I guess. Like, I suppose at some point it's going to be important to have a bit of distance from that character. Mm. But we're certainly very much seeing everything through his eyes, aren't we? Yeah, I think you're right. But big ideas. We've had evil and miracles and God and possibly demons or something you know like like there's we're straight into like the epic theater of, mm. of biblical language 
And that's probably all of the things that would be rushing around your head in that situation, right? Yeah. I need this and that and, you know, like you said, miracles and evil and, and uh, a bit of everything. I'm a big fan of any sort of, of art that plays around with dramatic focus shifts. Mm. Like whether it's um, whether it's a, a road movie that goes from some sort of glorious wide-angled expanse of scenery to a little tiny detail of the you know like as a, a wrinkle on a hand or a, a a key jangling on a dashboard or something, or the idea of of a novel that jumps between the the very prosaic description of the of the bedside light to the epic religious philosophical stuff. I don't know. I think it's an ambitious thing to do. I like it. Well, I don't think you'd be disappointed because it continues. Mm. But his requests were shattered when he looked down at her and realised her breathing had become shallow and erratic now. He almost laughed at the futility of his pathetic wish he'd just made, but his thoughts became angry and resentful as he helplessly watched her struggle for breath. A miracle. Who are you fooling? It isn't going to happen, is it? I'm going to lose you. They warned me you wouldn't make it through the night. Now it's just a waiting game. A tear fell onto her hand, but there was no response now. No miracle. And he knew that she would die that night. And that is your chapter one, Sandy. It's very candid, isn't it? Yeah, like you said, it's very raw. And we've gone through so much and you can tell it's a man really struggling with grief. I feel like he's already through various different levels of, you know, you sort of talk about the classic seven stages of grief. Mm. I think it must be really difficult when you know that somebody has been diagnosed with a terminal illness because you're probably going through the stages of grief while the person's still with you. He's already gone through denial and bargaining and anger and shock and disbelief, you know, all wrapped up in that basically only a page and a half of writing there. Yeah, you definitely see the bargaining of like he's saying, oh, you know, maybe it's not going to be tonight. Maybe something will come and change. And I don't know. It's um, it's interesting to start something that is going to become so obscenely immoral by really trying to rope in the reader's sympathies. Mm. <laughs> like, like, obviously, you can't read uh, a chapter like that knowing that some of it's real without feeling tremendous empathy for this guy. And yet you do know that by the end of the novel, <laughs> I don't know, maybe this is just because I've... No, even though the blurb is fairly explicit about this, right? Like You mm. know that, that... And also the book is called Perfectly Murderous. You know that by the end of the novel, you're really going to be regretting having had quite such uh, such a such a sympathy for the guy. You're right, you go through quite a journey. There's a lot of explaining and understanding where this guy's come from and um his his movement through to to come to that realization that have to murder and get away with it. Yeah. Hefty dose of sort of emotional bait and switch mm. to play out over the next however many pages. So that's it, Sandy, for that one. Nice. What I would say as well if if it any listeners have anything they want to add, anything they'd like to ask, as always, you can get in touch with us at perfectlymurderousoutlook.co.nz. And Sandy's monitoring that and will come back to us with any any of your thoughts. Like a hawk. Indeed. <laughs> mm. <laughs> hawks, hawks famously check their email on a, on a very regular basis. <laughs> so... Next week, we'll have a look at chapter two. Mm. And obviously, we're still very much staying with my stepmom being in hospital. But um, mm -hmm. we it takes an interesting twist in chapter two. Oh, you tease. You tease. <laughs> next week. Next week. But I want to know now. <laughs> Can't we binge record this podcast? 
<laughs> I, can, I can stay in my tiny recording cupboard for a week. I know I can. <laughs> I, I told you before, Sandy, that when I when I read the book, I was I I, I worked with a psychologist and I, I gave her a link and said, oh, yeah, we'll just read chapter one and then we'll discuss it um, tomorrow. <laughs> and then we both read sort of 30 chapters or something like that. <laughs> just couldn't stop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It feels like a bit of a page turner. Um, so, Sandy, just as we did last week, have you got a, a happy thing or a happy story just to take us uh, away from the grief and back to a happy place? Well, I don't know if it's a happy story. Both Ryan and I are big, big football fans. And uh, I finally got a chance to go and watch the, the national team, the all-conquering European champion national team play in person. So I managed to get myself a, a ticket and get along there after work last uh, last Thursday, and it was amazing. It was the first time since COVID started that I'd been in a crowd of like thirty eight thousand people. Wow, yeah. And the energy was amazing, and and then for ninety two minutes nothing happened, and then in the ninety third minute, North Macedonia scored an unexpected goal and knocked Italy out of the World Cup, <laughs> and that changed the atmosphere in the ground a little bit. Yep, I can um, imagine. I, I don't know how many Italians you know, but they can be, shall we say, healthily in touch with their emotions. And it was so close to the final whistle that everyone knew what it meant and that Italy weren't going to qualify for the World Cup. <laughs> and it, it was just surreal. It was it was a balloon being burst. It was a, a fart in a birthday party. It was it was really took the edge off the evening. But I had no idea you were there in the crowd, and you know, because I mean, what a party atmosphere it potentially could have been. That was yeah. That was my that was my broken heart. Yeah, you were laughing. At. <laughs> wow, what an upset it was. No, incredible. Yeah, yeah. And then the best little postscript to this mm. that I really did love and cheered me up, cheered me right up is that um, the Italian manager, Roberto Mancini, his mother was interviewed on a national radio station. Now, there should absolutely be more of this. I really want to know what what, what football managers' mums make of their performance <laughs> on a regular basis, right? Yeah. I would 100% watch like a sort of match of the day that was only presented. That was, In fact, actually, let's have Gary Lineker's mum presenting match of the day with a bunch of the managers' mums giving <laughs> varying degrees of support and, and throwing some fairly hefty shade at their at their son's performances so mrs mancini talking on talking on radio one right he she, she was quite positive you know she admitted that uh yesterday could have gone better but this is football sometimes things go right and sometimes things go wrong you know that's nice uh respect to the job that her her son who won a european championship for his country like a year ago is doing then she waded into the nitty-gritty of team selection saying that she would have called up mario balotelli because he has incredible physical strength and in front of the goal nobody can stop him and then she singled out the the midfielder Jorginho, who'd missed a couple of important penalties in some qualifiers and she said unfortunately mistakes like Jorginho's cost us i don't want to point my finger at him because he certainly didn't do it on purpose but if you miss three penalties and she left the thought unfinished. And I just thought, wow, <laughs> that is some savagery from the mum of the manager of the national team. Wow. What would she have done if she had wanted to point the finger at this guy? 
It's it's <laughs> extraordinary. In conclusion, the Italian mama is a formidable, formidable mm. figure, and we need more of that in 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 the world of sport. Sounds like they needed her at half time in the team talk. <laughs> Would have been good. <laughs> And possibly controlling the substitutions, actually. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like she had some ideas. Might, might have played off. <laughs> I love that. Like, you know, your son is is handsomely paid and has just delivered incredible glory to the to the nation. But deep down, you do know that he's made a very silly mistake not picking your favourite player. <laughs> and you have no problem saying that on national radio. That is... Uh, <laughs> that, is, that is some 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 sass. I like that. I love it. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Sandy. Oh man, it's been a pleasure. Looking forward to chapter two. Well, I'll see you next week. Take care, man. See you, buddy. Bye. Bye bye.